Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm in conversation with Michael Lewis, celebrated author of Moneyball and The Big Short, whose latest book, The Undoing Project, is an account of friendship between Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. In a first for The Spectator podcast, this has been recorded in front of a live audience, which accounts for the background noise. Michael, to start with, can I just ask you, a lot of people, I think, might go on the face of it, there's this guy who's written many books but has become really best known for writing about business and finance and about sport and suddenly you've hauled off and apparently written a book about two slightly nerdy academic psychologists. I mean, can you talk a bit about how these, you know, Kahneman and Tversky connect to the rest of your work? Let me tell you how I stumbled into the story, basically, uh, because I didn't think, you know... I, I never think, how does it connect to my work? Like, do, do I, is this my story? Uh, is it, or does it fit into the larger... I, the, the things are each separate story. So even though you can see patterns in, in the subject matter, I'm not looking for it when I, when I decide to write a book. So what happened... And I, I agree, though, that it was an odd topic for me to take on. And it took me some time to get comfortable with the idea that I would write it. Uh, but not because exactly because of the subject matter, but because of the intelligence of the subjects. I thought, I've had subjects to this point that I could largely get my mind around, and now I've got subjects that are so much smarter than me that it's quite possible I just can't get my mind around them. And I really felt like, for a long time, as I kind of reported it, that I was the B student trying to write about the A students. And whereas when I'm writing about the Wall Street guys or the money guy or the sports guys, I feel like <laughs> I'm the B student writing about the C students. And, and, and even, if, even if they themselves are quite bright, like the Wall Street guys are very bright, like sports guys are very bright, they're in a C student environment. Like there's only so much intelligence required to understand these people in this situation. And this was not true of this subject. So what happened was I wrote Moneyball about the, the Oakland athletics and the way they exploited market inefficiencies for baseball players. And I was interested in that because I thought how odd it was that a market that you would think would be efficient, you know, highly priced athletic talent, had these systematic problems in it and that they had identified them. And after the book came out, it was reviewed in The New Republic uh, by a pair of academics and they said that I didn't seem to realize that the, the biases in the marketplace were, in fact, biases in the human mind. And they had been uncovered by these two Israeli psychologists, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. So I'd never heard of them. And then found out that Kahneman had just won the Nobel Prize in economics, which struck me as strange because he wasn't an economist. But I, I stewed on this for a while and then discovered through a friend that he lived half a mile up the hill from me in Berkeley, California. And the friend knew him. Not only knew him, my friend had been Amos Tversky's teaching assistant. And he introduced me to Danny. Uh, and a relationship started. Not long after I met Danny, I realized that the, my favorite student, the one year I taught a writing class at Cal, was a kid named Oren Tversky, who was Amos Tversky's eldest son. So there was a almost weird instant access to these people. And Danny needed, when I met him, needed help. <clears throat> he was working on a book that uh, Penguin published called Thinking Fast and Slow that he said was going to ruin his reputation so he wasn't going to publish it. And my job in his life was to go up every two months and buck him up. 
and, and, and tell him, don't throw it away. And he'd hand me pieces of it and say, see how awful it is. And I go read it. I say, actually, it's very interesting. You go ahead with it. And the last, actually, the last stage of this, he paid a friend $5,000. He handed him $5,000 to go give to people he, who's, who, whose identity he would, he would never know, but who were familiar with his field, to trash his book so that he would be dissuaded from publishing it. But he was this person, he really curious personality. Oh, and as I got to know him, I started to hear the story of his relationship with Amos. And that's where I got really interested in the book. I got, the ideas were really interesting to me, the ideas of the work, but the idea that there was this uh, intellectual uh, romance that had occurred, and that these characters who quite clearly were interesting characters kind of grabbed me. And I live with them. Living with him, I meant I spent a lot of time with Danny w- whenever he was in town, and I spent a lot of time with the Tversky family and Amos's archives, which they opened up to me, for, you know, almost five years before I got up the nerve to really think I can write this book. Point? Did you say? To Are you going to talk to? I want to write your book. I no, I, I thought I'd try and. I, I thought it was just me. No, okay. okay. No, 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 I'm sorry. Going. Going. No, I'm but no, I mean, was there a point at which you thought you were going to write the book, and then? You a gap between then you went to Danny saying, I want to write your story. You know, that was a delicate dance because I think I said, after two or three years, there's really a story in this. Must have done that. He published that book in 2011, I think. And it must have been, I, I know I talked to him about it before then because he said, you've got to wait. My publisher says, you've got to wait till I write my book. And I didn't, I was fine with that because I wasn't even quite sure how I was going to do it. But he did say... I don't, his first reaction to it when I told him that I thought maybe there was a book in this, and it was always kind of couched in that tone. I, did, I was not, because I was not sure. He said he, he was very dubious uh, for a bunch of reasons, but he thought that the fact that he was gonna, alive would lead me to give him more credit in the collaboration than he deserved, and that all the people who knew them would hate him for it. And then he thought that there's no way I could possibly recreate them without exaggerating their differences and so on. So they couldn't get them right. And then I think he pretty quickly sensed that he was dealing with the B student in the class and that could the B student actually figure out these get these ideas across to the reader in some adequate way. And they just really didn't want the attention. It's not his, that's not who he is. And what I said to him, which I think is true, is that, the, that this collaboration was so important and the characters were so peculiar and the situation so inherently dramatic that someone someday was going to try to write this thing, probably after he was gone. And it was probably going to be done badly, as he suspected. That he, that was his suspicion. And I said, well, if it's going to be done badly, let me do it badly. And, uh, and he said, well, you're kind of right. I mean, so I know. No limitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's what he, so he sort of thought, well, at least I know you kind of like me. And, uh, and I, don't, won't get that, I can't be sure of that in anybody else. So he, he went along very reluctantly for the ride and was... I think it's fair to say the most difficult subject I've ever had. Not intentionally. He didn't put up barriers intentionally, but, you know, he's, he's an incredibly complicated person. And one of his complicated habits is that when you ask, ask him a question, he answers another one. He, doesn't, he never answers the question you ask. And he doesn't, he claims not to remember much of his own life when he actually does, and uh, you just have to poke and prod him a lot. So the fact that the, the, the nature of this project was it was much less connected uh, of uh, linear than any other project I've had. It was 
going for long walks with Danny Kahneman, asking him six questions, him giving me six answers to different questions, all of which were valuable, and then waiting to the next walk to ask him other questions to which he answered the first questions. <laughs> and, uh, and, and this went on uh, for years, for years. And, and I, I made five separate trips to Israel. I went to Israel with him. Actually, it's funny. We went. The first thing I wanted to do because I was interested in their military experience, and he had done essentially Moneyball for the Israeli army, and they, I'd heard that the Israeli army to this day uses the algorithm that he created in 1954, and they do, to sort the soldiers and who's decide who's going to be an officer, and and so we went to, he and I went traveled to Israel and we went to, the base where they train soldiers in the middle of nowhere, and we got there. And there were, I don't know, 50 or 60 drop-dead gorgeous young Israeli female soldiers waiting at the gates, like, you know, eagerly for our arrival. And I thought, man, this guy's got it going on. You know, he's got a, even the, even the pretty young chicks are interested in Danny Kahneman. And we walk in. It was in, for you, right? What's that? It was for you. It gets better. Uh, we, <laughs> we walked in, and they looked at us, and they melted away. And I, about an hour later, I said to our guy, I said, what was that when we walked in? Our, I said to our guy, why were they all there when we arrived? And she said, there's an Israeli underwear model named Michael Lewis who has these incredible abs. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they thought Danny Kahneman, the Nobel Prize, might be big enough to get this guy to our base. <laughs> and, uh, they, and when they saw you, they left. Uh, so, but, but, so I spent, I mean, the, the, the legwork on the thing was, I think there's always a lot of legwork on these things, but it was, I had to spend a lot of time in Israel and I spent a lot of time in various university towns that had little pieces of them. And along the way, I developed a conviction that while I might not be exactly the perfect writer to be dealing with the field of psychology and the subject of Israel in the early days of the state, no one was going to have the kind of access I had. That they were, everything opened up, and it was, and and things opened up that weren't, wouldn't normally open up. People were talking to me who wouldn't normally talk to some journalist. So I, I developed a sense that yeah, this was a great story, and someone really should tell it. No one else was going to really have the chance to tell it. So eventually, I just kind of decided I might as well do it. And was getting to Amos's character kind of harder, or? You know what's odd about this yeah. is that one of the, I remember early days, I remember one of the, my problems in my own head was I never had a dead character, a dead main character. I'd always been able to talk to my characters and observe them. And I thought this is going to be a problem. And it's going to be a problem because there's going to be this imbalance between Danny and Amos on the page. And in fact, Amos spoke so loudly from the grave that he was easier to draw than Danny because his signal was so clear. And it was because Amos Tversky in the most extreme way I've ever seen in any human being, never did or said anything he didn't want to do or say. He never saved anything that he didn't want to save. He had, every, so every, every memory of him, every interaction he had, had this meaning to it because, because he cut from his life ruthlessly anything he felt was extraneous. He thought people suffered, like paid really big prices for mild social embarrassment. And he, and he wasn't going to pay the price. So he would walk out of parties and board meetings when he got bored with them. He told people, he said, uh, my, uh, he said if you, you're sitting, you're at a party or a function, 
and you think it's a waste of time and you sit there trying to think of an excuse to leave and it's very hard but if you actually if you just start walking it's amazing how the words come into your head but he would he was a very unconventional parent he like never knew what grade his kids were in he, he didn't even know they were going to school some days you know that his daughter described to me coming down the stairs in the seventh grade at you know eight in the morning to go to school and amos says uh let's go buy a treadmill and she says uh dad you know dad i have school and he goes oh you know, that he has no idea. And he, his graduate students would describe to me him opening his mail, and he'd get stacks of stuff because everybody wanted to know what Amos thought about everything. And he would look through the envelopes and chuck like eight out of ten without opening them. And he'd say, I have a what-can-they-do-to-me rule. And if they can't do anything to me, I don't even bother opening it. Uh, and and so, so he had these archives, and he had all these people with memories of them doing various things. And there was so much volition to all of it that, that you got this very clear signal. And he was so sure of himself in such a... Like his mind, his character was like cut like a diamond that was very, very sharp and, def, and defined. So he ended up being kind of easy to bring back to life. How exact was Danny's memory of him? I mean, in the sense that obviously they had this long relationship, but it kind of soured at the end. And that's the sort of tragedy of the book is the way that that shift took place. Did you find you had to kind of dig in Danny's memory to find earlier Amos. Yes, and Danny responded very well. Everybody does actually respond very well to mnemonic devices. So Amos saved all of their letters to each other, the letters especially at the end when they're falling out, breaking up. And he even saved. He'd have, there were notes in Amos's file cabinet that were at the top. It said, preparation for conversation with Danny. And it would be the five things he knew Danny was calling to complain about and it would be his responses to what those five complaints were going to be. And I would show these things to Danny, and it would bring back stuff. Their pose, their public pose from about 1985 to Amos' death in 1996 was that they were still kind of friends and collaborators, but they just didn't do anything. They were, in fact, not collaborators. And towards the end, Danny said to him, I don't, we're not going to even be friends anymore. But they hit it. And in the beginning, Danny didn't speak of this at all. And at some point... I remember we were having lunch, and he just said, I'm in a confessional mood. I'm going to give you the crown jewels. And he just started talking about why he thought what had happened in their relationship and how it had ended. And he had a number of grievances still playing in his head. He still has them. He's still pissed at Amos. He, when he went to go get the Nobel Prize in 2002, alone because Amos was dead, he did bent over backwards to credit Amos for all the work Amos had done. To the extent that he, he, he pinned his eulogy to Amos to his Nobel Prize acceptance speech. And afterwards, he was complaining to everybody that Amos, to Amos if he had died first, Amos would never have done this for him. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's just like, you just won the Nobel Prize, and you're clinging to this. So I think, and at the same, by the same token, Amos's insensitivity comes across in uh, everything Amos does, when, from walking out of people's parties to not knowing where his children were to walking out of movies with his wife. Cause, cause but Danny was obviously such a sensitive very guy. Sen- so it was such an odd, this is the odd thing. The world's most sensitive man is with the world's most insensitive man. And the greatest line in their relationship, the love letters, is Amos writing to Danny, I don't get your sensitivity metric. Now, anybody who writes that <laughs> is, is not going to get anybody's sensitivity metric. <laughs> And, and, uh, and it, was one, it was like almost willful misunderstanding. And how they kept it together without any problems for 10 years, is that's the miracle. The miracle isn't that they broke up. The miracle is that they were ever together in the first place. 
And Amos just really couldn't understand Danny. It really was like, I mean, I know relationships like this. Usually Danny, the Danny character is a female and, the, and Amos' character is a, a guy. And it's like the guy does not appreciate how complicated the woman is and what her needs are. And Danny had a lot of needs and Amos didn't cater to them. And it would have, but they say that they stayed together. They stayed together as long as they were in Israel. Somehow Israel was a kind of cocoon. There weren't reasons, there were no reasons for problems between them. It was the minute they went to North America that Amos, it was their status differences went like this, and Amos became progressively, Danny became progressively more sensitive, and Amos became progressively less sensitive to Danny's sensitivities. And how do you feel that dynamic in their relationship? I mean, do you think that's at the heart of the, what made them intellectually so good. I mean, in a funny you know, way, how yes. Does it feed in? So this is in a funny way. This, I think it is, and it's this. This is how I thought of it. What are they studying? They're studying human fallibility, the vulnerabilities of the human mind. How are they studying it? They're studying it by largely by examining themselves and other people too. But when they're in a room talking about how what, the kind of weird things the mind does, a lot of their material is just their own experiences, and in particular Danny's experiences. Danny, in order to kind of delve into his own error, needs to feel safe and comfortable. The Danny is, lives in terror most of the time, especially when he's young Danny, of being found in mistake. He, and so what he does reflexively is he finds his own errors constantly. He's always undermining any potential attack on him by making, being the first one to attack himself. Hence his $5,000 to... Yes, exactly. He does that his whole life. Now, that's the behavior of someone who lives in fear. It's not, there's no great wonder about this when you're chased by Nazis through France for, for the four years of your childhood. Maybe you develop this. But he says, he says that has nothing to do with it. But nevertheless... And, he, and the way he puts his, his willingness to attack his own ideas in anticipation of other people's attacks is that he likes to change his mind. But in fact, what he really, I think, is he feels incredibly vulnerable all the time and is wondering where the attack's going to come from. Now, Amos is the most feared mind anybody has ever met. He terrified everybody. He terrified no, uh, Nobel Prize winners. He terrified physicists. Nobody, the, ter- the economics profession, I am convinced, accepts their work because they don't want to be in a fight with Amos because it's, be it's not going to end well. And Amos relaxes this critical, aggressive faculty in Danny's presence to the point where Danny feels unconditionally accepted by the most critical mind of his generation kind of thing. And he feels that he's a safe space. So if Amos, even Amos, can accept these fallibilities of his that he's inspecting, you can let them out. I think that was the key to the relationship. And the minute, the way Danny puts the breakup, the beginning of the breakup, is he, Amos became more critical of my ideas. And in the letters between them, it's, it's, there's a lot of that. It's a lot of, you used to just accept my ideas, and now I sense you're critical of them. And uh, so I think that in order to study the fallibility that Danny was so alive to, he needed to feel like it was safe to do it. It almost seems too perfect a kind of irony that the thing he was working on right when their relationship was sort of heading to break up was this project to do with regret and reproach and if only it had gone differently, this undoing project, which is your title. I mean, was that just pure happenstance? Yes. In fact, it was even it was it was better than maybe better than, you know, because I can't I'm trying to remember whether this actually entered. It didn't enter the book. 
that Danny was te- told me when I discovered the pile of stuff that was never really completed, where they were exploring the rules of the human imagination. I was blown away. This is the idea that you would think that the imagination obeyed rules. And then you would start to actually persuasively describe these rules. And you would do it starting with the life experience of watching your nephew two days before he was due to be released from the Israeli Air Force, crashing his jet, thinking he was flying up, instead of flying down right into the desert floor and dying. And instead of experiencing the grief, what Danny does is he distances himself from the grief and watches other people's grief. And he sees that they're creating, his, all that this kid's loved ones were creating these alternative realities. If only he'd got out of the Air Force two days earlier. If only that flare had not gone up and blinded him. And he says, he noticed that they weren't saying, if only there wasn't an Israeli Air Force. There were like rules to how they undid the tragedy so that it didn't happen. And he wanted to explore these, and he was thinking, I'm doing it, and Amos is not interested in it. This is this rich like vein of material, and Amos won't mine, mine it with me. I had found, and Danny called the project Possible Worlds. I had found in Amos's file cabinets a file called The Undoing Project, in which Amos, taking copious notes clearly, based on conversations on the phone with Danny, and was off noodling. They were creating scenarios for people to try to undo, to see how they undid them. And Amos's weren't nearly as interesting as Danny's, but he was doing it. He was obviously putting a lot of work into it, seeing if he could formalize it in math. He was, it was kind of what Amos did. And when I showed it to Danny, he, he went pale. He said, I had no idea. No wonder he was so angry at me when I pulled the project back from him. They had a rule. They, only, they worked together on something. They didn't share it with anybody. They, it was joint. And Danny violated the rule with that project because he thought Amos wasn't paying sufficiently uncritical, uh, sufficient uncritical attention to his ideas and took the project back and said, it's mine. I'm doing it alone or with someone else. And Amos was furious. But Danny didn't understand why because he thought Amos wasn't paying any attention to it. But Amos, he had this now evidence in front of his eyes that Amos had done all this stuff. He went, oh, my God, I had, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea what was going on in his head. So in this way, there were several moments like this in my relationship with Danny where I'd show him something and he'd go, I had it wrong. I mean, I, didn't, I was misreading him. And Danny is very capable of misreading situations. I mean, in fact, it's source of, a source of his creativity is he, he, he looks at a situation and misconstrues it in the most spectacular way, but it's really interesting. I should just end this by just asking, do you know, if, has Danny read your book? Yes. And how has he reacted to it? Does he feel you've got, got him right? Or did he find it painful to have it dredged up? Or All of the above? No, and, and, I, and I got him wrong. So I got him right, I got him wrong, painful to dredge up the experiences. This, was a wonder, this has been a, a really one of the richer experiences of my life to have this retold. I'm filled with warmth and gratitude. You're an asshole. Um, I mean, all of those, it's become at different times. But the truth is, so if I had to chart his reaction to the book, I knew it was going to be a problem just because he's so smart and he's so critical and he doesn't like much. So I didn't have actually great ambition that he would like my book. I just thought he would say, I was hoping he would say it was fair. And his first reaction was, it fills me with warmth. And he was very happy. And then a few days later, he got upset. And he got upset. He said, you didn't do me any favors. And I didn't know quite what he meant by that. And then he said, 
came back and said, um, there's some specific points I want to dispute. And when we got through that, he said, I'm really growing to like this thing. And then he said, we should have lunch. And then he said, it's really wonderful. So he's gotten through it. I told him in the beginning that this was going to happen, not just because he is who he is, but because every person I've ever written a book about, when they read it, there is a jolt. And the jolt is the jolt you experience when you hear your voice on tape for the first time. And that's if I got it right. That the best, the best you're going to hope for is that it just sounds a little alien to you, but it is you. And the way you're going to find out it's you is you're going to listen to it for a while and you're going to start to have that feeling, oh, that's kind of me. But you're also going to show it to people who know and love you and they're going to tell you how far off I am. And that has always saved me. I've had many upset subjects come back after a couple of days and say, you know, it's pretty good. Uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm great with it, actually. And then they forget that all, the whole, that whole awkward first week after they read it, and they just like it. Danny's first week went on for several weeks. And, um, <laughs> and I think it's all right now, but I don't blame him. I mean, I dredged up all this stuff. And the stuff, y- you talk to people who have known Danny. I interviewed, I don't know how many of them, but people who knew Danny from Wynn way back when he was very young. And they say, they all said to me, I faced a daunting challenge. And the challenge was describing Danny as he was before he won the Nobel Prize. Because the person after the Nobel Prize is a changed person. There's a kind of softness and a ease about him that just was not apparent before. That he it was gloomy, noticeably unhappy and neurotic, difficult all the time. A lot of that's past. He's not nearly as... He's still really hard on himself, less hard on others. The reason people loved him in spite of this, the people who loved him, is even when he was hard on them, they saw he was even harder on himself. So he was not... He, it was, there was no double standard. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for listening, and have a very happy Christmas. We'll be back in January.